Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, quiet stories and meditations to help you find a little peace at bedtime or anytime. Well, to get a little break from all the heat we've been having lately, I was out on the coast for a couple days this week with Joe and Bodhi and Ninja. Poor Ninja. He just hates riding in the car. Ever since he was like a eight-week-old kitten, he's grown up here on the mountain. And up until recently, he has only had to take a trip to the vet once a year. So I wish I had taken him in the car more when he was a kitten, so he was more used to it. But I didn't. And he just doesn't like it much. He cries and sometimes gets a little car sick. But now that we're out on the coast more, I wanted him to be with us instead of on his own here for a couple of days if we're gone. So we got a soft car carrier that I can put on the seat next to me and unzip the door a little to pet him when he gets upset. He's slowly getting used to the new routine, and it's really nice to have him out at the coast with us. A supporter named Isabel emailed me last week, letting me know how much the podcast helped her sleep. She also noted that some of the stories on the podcast aren't quite right for her, and asked if I could maybe read some more nonfiction, which I don't really do all that often. And she's right. Some of these stories are a bit odd. And I guess that's part of what I like about Listen to Sleep. Since it's just me making the podcast, it's just me picking the stories. And I love finding a variety of types of stories for you. I know some of you want more scary stories, and some of you have extremely negative reactions to scary stories. Some of you would like more Viking tales, but for genres like that, the library just isn't very large, and I'm almost at the end of being able to find any Viking myths I haven't read already. And many of you have requested books like Harry Potter, and those are copyrighted, and I don't have the rights to read them for you. One of the reasons that I read so many old books is that they're in the public domain and free for anyone to read and record without rights restrictions or fees. Isabel sent me a link to a nonfiction book she was interested in hearing me read, and it's in the public domain. So this week, I'm going to read a chapter from that. A great place to search for those books is on gutenberg.org. That's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot org. Every episode of the podcast, pretty much, has a link to its free book on gutenberg.org. So you can find the link in the show notes. If you find something you'd like me to read, you can email me a link to that book via the website at listentosleep.com. I want to thank the folks who supported the podcast by joining the Patreon this week. Thank you, Tracy, Raina, Auna, Eve, Erica, Moira, Rihanna, 
Jennifer, Shannon, and Wash. Thank you so much. If these stories help you sleep and you have the means, I would really appreciate it if you'd consider supporting the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the ad-free or extended versions through the Patreon, or you can buy a sleepy audiobook for just $5.50 on listentosleep.com, or you can just leave a tip. Your support, along with that of the advertisers, helps me to continue to make two free episodes of Listen to Sleep every week to help folks all over the world get a little better sleep at night and a little more peace during the day. You can search and listen to every episode for free on listentosleep.com, where you can also get more information about supporting the podcast and all of the perks that are available for supporters. You can also find links to go directly to all of those things in the show notes. The book Isabel asked me to read is from 1921. It's by Mary Arnold Forster, and it's called Studies in Dreams. Sounds kind of perfect, right? I'll be reading you the chapter on super dreams, which seemed especially appropriate because it talks a lot about a super dream that Robert Louis Stevenson had. And right now, we're just getting to the middle of Treasure Island on the Wednesday night episodes of Listen to Sleep Plus. Okay, let's take a deep breath in. And out. Letting go of the day, feeling the weight of gravity pulling you deep down into the mattress. Another deep breath in and out. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. This is your time, quiet time. And one more deep breath in. And out. If you get tired while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. The Super Dream There are some who claim to have lived longer and more richly than their neighbors. When they lay asleep, they claim they were still active, and among the treasures of memory that all men review for their amusement, these count in no second place to the harvests of their dreams. Robert Louis Stevenson, from A Chapter on Dreams a very curious and rare type of dream, which is attested to by perfectly reliable witnesses, is what may be called 
the super dream, in which the dream mind, working beyond its ordinary level of capacity, has actually solved problems that have defeated the efforts of the normal mind in its waking hours. The instance of Condorcet, who in such a dream solved a mathematical problem, the answer to which he had vainly sought by day, has often been quoted. And Condorcet's experience was almost exactly repeated in the case of my father, Neville Story Maskeline. The mathematical problem that had baffled him came into the treatise on crystallography on which he was engaged. After working at it for many hours, he was obliged to leave it unsolved and go to bed. He fell into a deep sleep, and in the course of a long dream, the answer to the problem came to him. He often described this to me, and told me how in an early hour of the morning he awoke and wrote down the solution that the dream had given him, and anxiously tested its correctness. A friend writes of her very similar experience in solving mathematical difficulties in her sleep. On more than one occasion, when studying for examinations, I worked for two or three days at a problem without arriving at the solution, and finally worked it in my dreams with such clearness that I was able to write down the correct result quite easily on awakening. On occasions during my school days, the same thing used to happen. And if I met with very hard sums and riders, I used to put pencil and paper by my bedside so as to be ready to write down the answer if it came to me in my sleep. Henri Fabre, in his Souvenirs Etymologiques, explains that sleep, in his case, was often a state which did not suspend the mind's activity, but actually quickened it. And in sleep, he was able, at times, to solve mathematical problems with which he had struggled by day. A brilliant beacon flares up in my brain, and then I jump from my bed light my lamp, and write down the solution the memory of which would otherwise be lost. Like flashes of lightning, these gleams vanish as suddenly as they appear. These cases, though uncommon, are not isolated ones. Other equally reliable witnesses have told of their similar experiences. And though these seem specially striking when the problems grappled with by the dream mind are the problems of such an exact science as mathematics, 
there is nothing in their occurrence that is out of harmony with what we know or with what the latest researches of science teach us about the mental faculties in the dream state. Reason is, we believe, continually at work in dreams. And we know that in this state, imagination works with greatly increased powers. Imagination is an essential element in the attainment of any great intellectual result. And progress in mathematical knowledge, as in all scientific research, has been largely due to provisional explanations constructed by the imagination, such explanations being framed in accordance with known facts. One great difference between these super-dreams and the ordinary dream is that a sufficiently clear remembrance of essential facts is carried over into the dream state to enable the dream reason to draw correct inferences. Whereas, in most dreams, it has to work on more or less insufficient data, and consequently, often comes to wrong conclusions. Armed with the necessary facts, reason in the super-dream works correctly and powerfully, and at the same time, imagination supplies the other essential element that the thinker needs. Thought alone is not sufficient for most operations of the mind. Imagination is also required. In every case of the kind that I have met with, the solution that has been thus arrived at in the dream seems to the dreamer not to be the product of his own reasoning powers, but to be a conclusion arrived at independently of himself, like a light flashed onto his mind from without, illuminating the difficulty that had seemed hopeless in his normal mind by day. This type of dream, with its strange faculty of insight or intuition, has been realized perhaps more often by those of letters than by those of science although it must be, in any case, a rare experience. The dream in which Coleridge composed Kubla Khan may possibly be looked upon with some doubt, because, in his case, sleep was at times induced and influenced by opium. But there seems no reason to question the fact that the conception of the poem came to him in a dream, and that a part of it, at any rate, was written down from memory directly afterwards. Various instances of creative dreams have been related. A striking example of an original 
and very dramatic story, which was entirely the creation of a dream, was told to me lately by a writer who has attained a distinguished place among modern novelists. At the time when the dream occurred, he was engaged on a book which was absorbing all his time and thoughts. About two-thirds of this had already been written, and it was making steady progress to completion, when one night he experienced a dream of extraordinary force and vividness. In this dream, a story of a most dramatic nature was partially unfolded, and on following nights it was continued and completed. He dreamed and redreamed the story. The whole plot, the scenes of the drama and its characters were so clearly realized and made upon the dreamer so insistent an impression that he could not free himself from the memory of them. They came between him and his other work, and he was at last obliged to lay this on one side until he had fully written down the dream story. He is, he explained, a rather slow worker, attaining the effects that he seeks by dint of patient care. But when he began to write down the dream, it seemed to be like a tale that was told to him rather than a thing of his own creation. The story, as he wrote it, certainly conveys the impression not of invented scenes and happenings, but rather of things that had actually been witnessed by the narrator. This may, however, of course, be due not to the curious manner in which it had its origin, but to the graphic power of the novelist. Very similar to his experience were the dream creations which were so fully described by Robert Louis Stevenson in his essay called A Chapter on Dreams. In this essay, which gives a most lucid account of his whole dream life, he described the process of inventive dreaming from which many of his stories originated. So completely did these dreams seem to him to be an inspiration from outside himself, the operation of faculties apart from the workings of his normal mind and working at a higher level, that he speaks of them as being the handiwork of the little people, brownies of the mind, who, whilst he slept, bestirred themselves to construct and elaborate for him the plots of his stories, far better tales, he declared, than any that he could invent for himself by day. He gives in this essay the outlines of one such story, of which he says truly that 
it would be hard to better the dramatic effectiveness of its situations. The plot of the dream story hinged upon the hidden motive of the woman who played the leading part in the little drama. And until its very end, that secret was kept. The dreamer had no guess whatever at this motive, the hinge of the whole well-invented plot, until the instant of its highly dramatic declaration. It was not his tale. It was the little people's. And observe, not only was the secret kept, the story was told with really guileful craftsmanship. I am awake now, and I know this trade, and yet I cannot better it. The more I think of it, the more I am moved to press upon the world my question, who are the little people? They are near connections of the dreamers, beyond doubt. They share plainly in his training. They have plainly learned, like him, to build the scheme of a consistent story and to arrange emotion in progressive order. Only, I think, they have more talent. And one thing is beyond doubt. They can tell him a story piece by piece, like a serial, and keep him all the while in ignorance of where they aim. What indeed are these dream builders? If we could but answer this question satisfactorily, we should solve the most baffling problems of our dreams. This power of the dream mind not only to construct a dramatic story, but to conceal from us till the very end the denouement to which the story led up. What a mystery it reveals. How does this thing happen? We know that it does happen, for though our own dreams are far from being such remarkable ones as those described by Stevenson, And though they lack all the craftsmanship and finish of his, yet we too have experienced the same thrill of wonder when a secret carefully hidden from us till the end has suddenly been disclosed. The suggestion made in the earlier part of this chapter as to the main difference between the ordinary dreams and super dreams does not here suffice. It is inadequate to account for mental processes such as these. For here, far more even than in our dreams of argument, a dual consciousness or personality seems to be present. Here again, the curious sense is felt that someone not quite oneself, someone with rather different faculties from one's own, but yet an integral part of self is at work, taking a hand in the business. 
facts that we do not know are in their possession, and the answer to the riddle of the dream story is within the knowledge of this other self, though it is hidden from ourselves. Stevenson realized that this other self was intimately related to the dreamer, trained as he himself was trained, but able, he believed, to do something which he himself could not do, or to do it better. And to this same mysterious other self, I imagine that the mathematician also owes the dream solution of his problem. These and many equally curious and interesting experiences, which are nowadays occupying the attention of people in science, seem to require the assumption of a secondary consciousness existing side by side with our ordinary personal consciousness. And, indeed, unless we can assume the presence of such a divided personality or consciousness, it seems almost impossible to conceive how certain processes of the mind are carried out in the dream state or in the hypnotic state. Although the consideration of this most difficult aspect can only be dealt with imperfectly by an observer who has not the necessary knowledge of psychology, it would be impossible to deal at all thoroughly with the question of dreams unless this aspect is considered. Before passing on to other questions, it is curious to note the attitude that many people, writers and others, adopt with regard to dream experiences, which, like those described above, are outside the common range of experience, and which do not chance to have come under their own immediate observation. Dreamers who have actually had these uncommon experiences know from first-hand knowledge that, strange as they may seem, such dreams occur and must be taken into account when problems concerning the activity of the mind in sleep or the possibility of a divided consciousness or dual personality in man are considered. But whereas a person's careful and straightforward statement about the processes of their waking thoughts would be accepted without questioning, it is more than likely that if they should make an equally careful statement about their dreams, they will find that this is looked upon very doubtfully by their fellows. Even a philosopher like M. Bergson, having stated the theory that, in general, dreams create nothing, finds it necessary to explain away the case of such creative dreams as Stevenson's by saying that the dreamer was probably in a psychical state 
in which it would have been difficult to say whether he were asleep or awake. For when the mind creates, when it is capable of making the effort to organize and synthesize, which is necessary in order to triumph over a difficulty, to solve a problem, or to produce a work of imagination, we are not really asleep. This summary way of dealing with facts or records which clash awkwardly with theories is noted here only because this attitude is rather often found in books about dreaming. But it is a curious attitude to adopt towards Stevenson's very deliberate and very careful analysis of his dream life over a period of years. If, in pursuing another study, we found that carefully recorded facts did not conform to a theory that we had formed, we should probably concede that the theory might be either incorrect or not sufficiently elastic. The question whether anything can be known is to be settled not by arguing, but by trying, and the inductive method of arriving at truth by means of experiment rather than by logic advocated by the great philosopher is still the method that it is safest to follow if our conclusions are to be sound. It is, of course, the absence of sufficient accurately recorded facts concerning dreams that has made it natural that philosophers should build up their theories concerning them without an adequately wide foundation. And so, once again, we are brought round to the need for a clearinghouse of dreams, whose widely gathered stores of observation would be available to correct or to confirm the theories about the working of the dream mind that science may hereafter form. Good night.